off the message, let me ask, how many of you are from Southeast Texas? Raise your hand if you're from Southeast Texas. Look around the room. All right. Now, if you're not from Southeast Texas, do me a favor, raise your hand. Where's all my friends? There we go. Look around the room. Hey, welcome home. Hey, you're not from Texas, but you got here as fast as you could. Amen. If you are from Southeast Texas, I bet I could trigger you simply by saying two words. You think it's possible? Hurricane Harvey. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's been, it's been over six years since Hurricane Harvey hit. Uh, I remember it. We got three and a half feet of water uh, in the house that we were at, and we actually had to be rescued by a boat. I'll post it in the Connect page. There's a video. Esther is uh, 10 months old, and we get rescued going uh, in a boat down 1130 in Orange. It was a traumatic experience. Let me ask you, how many of you are ready for hurricane season? Anybody? Y'all prepared? Where's all my preppers at in the room? Okay, now we know whose house to go to when the storm comes. I was interested because it's been a really quiet hurricane season so far this year, uh, and it's really hot outside. We went to the beach and got burned, and so I was like, I wonder what, uh, what this hurricane season is going to look like. And meteorologists, they said that in the month of September, they're expecting a 60% increase in hurricane activity, more so than we've experienced in the last five years. Are you ready for when the storm comes? Okay, well, you need to be ready. Uh, hurricane preparedness is something very important. And you're wondering, well, what does that have to do with the message today? Uh, because what we're going to see is something very similar happen in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, we're in Acts chapter 5. We're going verse by verse through the book of Acts, learning how to be the church that God intended for us to be. And there is a hurricane that is coming, but it's not a physical hurricane. Rather, it's a spiritual hurricane. There's a spiritual hurricane that's out in the Gulf, and it's, it's brewing. And over the last five chapters, we see the storm gathering some momentum. And as we hit chapter 5, we see that the hurricane has made landfall. And it's not, it's not a hurricane like Harvey. It's not Ike. It's not Rita or Katrina. But it goes by a, a different term, and it's a hurricane of what's called persecution. We're going to see what happens when persecution comes upon the early church. And we're going to learn from the early church. And then we're going to take those lessons and we're going to apply it to our church. Because just like a hurricane, it's never a matter of if, it's always a matter of when. If you're not from Southeast Texas, you need to know that. You're like, it hasn't happened yet. Just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't happen. There's always a chance. And so we always need to be prepared. Now, here's the goal of the message today. I am not here to scare you. I am here to prepare you. Like, we don't need to be afraid. We need to walk in faith. But we don't need to be scared. But we do need to be prepared. Because the world is getting darker. But the darker the world gets, the brighter the light shines. That we are the, the city on a hill. We are the, the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And so we don't need to be scared, but rather we need to be prepared for what happens when that day comes. Here's the sermon title for today is, Are Christians Being Persecuted Today? Now, before you answer that question, because some people are immediately at all services be like, yes, absolutely. And others are like, no, never. I want you to suspend your judgment. Wait till the end to be able to give your opinion. But we need to learn from the early church so we can apply it to our church. And the question that we're going to see today is, are Christians being persecuted? And I'm going to walk through the text and we're going to learn from them about how we can apply this to us. And so the first thing that we're going to see is 
persecution itself. If you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 17, but the high priest, that's the leading religious leader. Now, we got to understand a little bit of the context. In first century uh, Judaism, it was, a, a, it was a annex of Rome, but the, the Roman officials gave them permission to govern it. So it's kind of like a, a religious government all tied together at the same time. And so this high priest, and we're going to see the, the Sadducees and the ruling elders, those are like the political party and the Supreme Court and the high priest would be kind of like the governor. And so as the story begins, we see the high priest, he rises up. And what's going to happen? He comes against all those who are with him, that was the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and they put them into a public prison. So we're going to start by talking about persecution. If you're just joining us as our study through Acts, what we've seen is that the church has been growing rapidly. Acts 1 starts off with Jesus resurrected, spending 40 days with the apostles, training them and, and preaching to them and teaching them before he ascends to the heaven and he promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower them. Why? To be his witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then they go out and they start preaching and people start getting saved and baptized. And what started with 12 people in Acts chapter 1, by the time we reach Acts chapter 5, has grown upwards of about uh, 20,000 people in the early church at that time. It says that there were 5,000 men, add women and children, and could be 20 to 25,000 people. The church is growing rapidly. And this angers the religious leaders because just a few years ago, they crucified Jesus. They thought, well, we're killed Jesus and all of this Christianity stuff is just gonna die out and it's not gonna be a big deal. We don't have to worry about it anymore. But as they killed Jesus, the church continued growing and this became big problems for them because now they could no longer manipulate and control the people. They didn't want the growth because the growth of the church meant less control by the government. And so they step in and they try to persecute. And that's what they say in Acts chapter 4. They've arrested them. They beat them. They brought them to prison and said, if you keep talking about Jesus, worse things going to happen to you next time. So what does the church do? Acts 4 tells us that once they get out of prison, they go to church, they have a prayer meeting, and they gather everybody together and say, guys, we were just beaten, and they told us that if you keep talking about Jesus, they're going to kill us. And so what are we going to do? We're going to pray, and they prayed this crazy, dangerous, audacious prayer. Here's what they prayed. Lord, give us boldness to keep preaching Jesus. And the Holy Spirit fell and filled in that place. It says the place was shaken. They were all filled with the Spirit. And then it says they continued to preach the word of God with boldness. That's chapter 4. Chapter 5 opens with Peter in the temple. This is a large public setting. And he's preaching the resurrection of Jesus publicly, openly. And the message is confirmed by signs, wonders, and miracles. We studied that last week. People are getting healed. People are getting saved. And it says multitudes began to add into the house of the Lord. So the church begins growing rapidly again. So he's preaching publicly. Now the religious leaders, they're offended. And so they're like, we have to do something to stop them. So go out and arrest them, bring them in, and let's throw them into prison. So that leads us to the question of, is persecution happening today? Well, the reality is this, is that persecution is a part of the Christian story. It started 2,000 years ago, and it continues on up until the place that we get today. 
Persecution is a part of the Christian story. Like it, it never ended well for any of the apostles who followed Jesus. All of them, minus one, were martyred, killed, sawn into, beheaded, drawn and quartered, burned alive, crucified upside down. The only one who did not die a martyr's death was John the apostle. He was boiled alive in oil and annexed out onto the island of Patmos. And the church continues to experience persecution throughout every single age and even in the world today. Is persecution happening? Absolutely. One out of seven Christians are currently living in countries where they are under the threat of persecution, even death, every single day. There are 52 countries right now where it is illegal to own a Bible. Like there are brothers and sisters we have right now overseas in China or India or in the Middle East where they're gathered together today, but at any moment, a government official could bust through the doors and murder all of them. And so the reality is, is yes, According to Gordon Cromwell University and their philosophy and religion department, 100,000 Christians last year were martyred for their faith. That means one Christian every five minutes. So since I started this sermon, two of your brothers and sisters were killed for Jesus. By the time that I finish this sermon, be 10. By the time you go out to lunch, Christians dead because of practicing their faith. We have missionaries that you support through your tithes and offerings as a church. We support missionaries who plant churches in Muslim countries and underground churches in China. And there are missionaries on the ground right there, right now, serving the persecuted church because of your tithes and offerings. So for them, this is a reality. Like they're living the book of Acts every single day. They, 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 they get a call of God, they sell all of their possessions, they buy a life insurance policy and a one-way ticket, no guarantee they're ever coming back. That's the reality that many Christians live in on a daily basis. So are Christians being persecuted today? It's the number one persecuted religious group in the world. So the answer is yes. But are Christians in America experiencing persecution. Well, not like our brothers and sisters overseas, not like our, our family and underground churches. This is one of the reasons why the Multiply Generosity Initiative that we're doing right now is so important. Because Multiply is not about us moving into this new building and renovating this 21,000 square foot space and 600 seats where we can worship the Lord. It's not about a building. We're not just giving to a building. We're, we're giving to build the kingdom of God. And in this multiply, we have committed $160,000 to missions over the next two years because we recognize the gospel is not, uh, is not American. The gospel is global. Like you need to understand that. Like, like, like Jesus was not an American. Right? The Christianity didn't start in, in, in America. It, it's, it started in the Middle East. It's an Eastern religion founded by a Jewish guy, and it's grown all around the world. And so just because it's not happening here doesn't mean it's not happening anywhere. We have to recognize that we are a part of a global church with a worldwide family. And our brothers and sisters overseas are being persecuted, arrested, thrown in prison right now. So what do we have to learn from them? And here's the reality is that persecution does not happen overnight. It happens over time. Like it doesn't start just immediately and all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, oh no, all my freedoms are gone. No, it's not how it starts. It starts small and it grows large. Just like a hurricane doesn't start in the Gulf. 
A hurricane starts where? Overseas. And it goes through and it builds up and it builds up and it comes upon hot water and it builds up a little bit more and then the high pressure low and then all of a sudden it grows and grows until it hits the gulf. And then once it hits the gulf, boom, it comes to shore. It doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen over time. And what we are beginning to see, I believe, is the framework laid for what persecution could look like here in America and I don't know how long. Because persecution doesn't start persecution. There's actually five stages. Sociologists give a, a five-sequence step for persecution. And the first step is this. The first step is stereotyping. Are Christians being stereotyped? Are we, are, are we judging everybody and lumping them in one category? Yes, Christians are stupid. They're bigoted, homophobic, uneducated. They're not up with the times. They're a relic of the past. Oh, you're a Christian? Oh, yeah, you just don't understand because you worship a sky daddy. So are we being stereotyped? Christians are, are currently being stereotyped, yes. The second thing, it moves to vilifying. This is where they begin to blame you for their problems. We saw this heavily during 2020 and, and COVID. I don't know if you guys have forgotten COVID or just tried to forget or have selective memory, but that was a wild time. They began to call us grandma killers and super spreaders because we wanted to have, have church and, and gather together for church. Oh, we have to shut down the churches. You, you can't meet. But you can go to a strip club. That's sanitary and safe. Strip clubs are open. Churches are closed. You can put a 20 in a G-string, but you can't take communion because that's, that's dirty. And everybody's out rioting and protesting in the streets. Uh, and that's, that, is a, that, that is okay, but gathering for church is not. They, they have a mask on, so it's safe. They can't get COVID because there's thousands of them burning down buildings, but you can't go to church. And then all of a sudden, we became the conspiracy theorists. And, and we became the disinformation and misinformation ar around that, and they began to blame us for their problems. That, that's, that's vilifying. The, the world that we're living in with the progressive culture that we're in, they see the church as an enemy to progress. Because the, the church in America, the church, the Christian faith, what we're doing is we are an enemy to their identity. We're preventing their progress. We're limiting what they would call freedom, but is, which is what the Bible really calls slavery to sin. And so they say, you, don't, you can't vote. You shouldn't vote because your vote goes against our beliefs. It's like, hey, your vote goes against our beliefs too. Like, quid pro quo. Like, if you get one, I get one. But all of a sudden, we become vilified. We're the, we're, we're the target of that. And then number three, it leads to marginalization. This is where people begin to be pushed to the sides, pushed to the outside. They begin to lose friends. People lose their jobs. We have people in our church who lost their jobs during COVID because they refused to get the jab. We have others who their pay was docked, $50 per paycheck because they, they, they wouldn't get the, the jab. I would, write, I would write religious exemptions for people because it was a violation of their conscience. And so it's a sin for them because it violates their conscience. It might not violate yours, but it violates theirs. And so they have to do what's right as the Holy Spirit leads them. But then they got made fun of, and then they got criticized, and people were making posts about them. And I mean, even during the Black Lives Matter, when people wouldn't post the square, what's wrong with you? You won't post the square? You won't post the hashtag? Like, are you a racist? You're like, I'm not a racist. I just don't like Marxism. I mean, I, I agree with the term Black Lives Matter, but... The organization itself underneath it goes against everything the Bible teaches. It's an anti-Christ organization. I can't, I can't support that. I don't support racism or white supremacy. But at the same time, I'm not going to post a hashtag. And then people begin to lose friendships and lose jobs and lose relationships. I even have a friend of 20 years who, who messaged me after one of our sermons. 
when I was preaching about transgenderism and God's design for gender and sexuality and marriage, she said, the blood of every trans teenager is on your hands. Accuse me of being a murderer. Because I believe that God created us male and female in marriage between one man and one woman. And what is God designed should not be redefined. And so because I was preaching this, he called me a, a murderer. Meanwhile, he supports abortion with 60 million dead since Roe v. Wade. There's, there's, there's that marginalization. And then eventually it leads to what is criminalization. Is Christianity outlawed? No. Like we have tremendous freedoms. We live in America. We have the freedom of religion. But at the same time, there is a growing opposition through political means that seeks to, seeks to undermine a lot of what the Bible's teaching. And all of a sudden, we see that there is this growing opposition to, to how we live out and practice our day-to-day faith. And so it's not here yet, but they're already starting to attempt to pass laws where not using somebody's preferred pronouns could be considered hate speech. Or in places like California, which is happening in Canada, where if parents don't support the transitioning of their teenagers, the schools will take it as a responsibility to be able to refer to pronouns, maybe give cross-sex hormones. And if you can't take your kid to a Christian counselor because that's called conversion therapy, so send them to a big pharma therapist where they can mutilate their genitals and confuse them even more. And if we are opposed to this, then all of a sudden now we're the ones who are the enemy. Which leads to the the fifth thing, which is persecution. That's outright, are we being persecuted? No. But we would be crazy if we didn't think that the storm is coming. Like, I'm not trying to scare you. But as a pastor, I would not be doing my job if I did not prepare you that there is always a possibility. It's a part of church history. It's always been a part of church history. Our brothers and sisters are experiencing around the world. And maybe one day, I hope not. But maybe one day we will. And here's the reason why. Because freedom is always one generation away from extinction. Freedom is always one generation away from extinction. Like, this might not happen in your lifetime, but what about your kids? What world are your kids going to grow up in? What world are your grandkids going to grow up in? Like, think about how much the world has changed in the last 20 years versus where we're at today. Like, 20 years, the idea of a, a nationwide lockdown was inconceivable. But all of a sudden, a a virus shows up, the government clamps down, and everybody stays home and quits their jobs and gets a paycheck from the government. Churches are closed. Businesses are closed. That would be inconceivable 20 years ago, but now we fold like lawn chairs anytime we get scared. But think about it like 20 years ago, a man was a man. Today, people don't even know what the difference between a male and a woman is. We have women who hate men, and we have men who want to be women, and then we have politicians who can't even define what a woman actually is. There's 72 genders you could pick on social media. Which one do you feel like you're at today? And 30% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ+. Like there is a, uh, there's a social contagion that is happening in our nation. And it's around this idea of sexuality. And it's only continuing to increase and grow. And the hostility from the government and from the cultural means and from Hollywood and from all, it's continuing to begin to oppress. It's beginning to grow. And it's not here yet, but one day it will come. And so on that day, will you be prepared? My job is not to scare you. My job is to prepare you. What will you do when that day comes? That's persecution. 
It's been a part of the church history forever. But because many of us grew up in this Americanized gospel version, we think that Christianity started with us and it's all about us. And we overlook what God has done through the centuries and all across every other nation in the world. The second thing it leads to is this, it's perseverance. So what does the church do when we're persecuted? We persevere. Look how the story continues. It says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. This is like a ninja angel, right? It's the middle of the night. I just, I just, just read the Bible with me in my mind. It's in the middle of the night. They're in prison. They're locked up. And all of a sudden, God says, hey, angel, go set him free. So the angel's like, I've been practicing picking locks for all eternity. Let's go. <laughs> So he jumps in in the middle of the cover of night, picks the lock, right? Ninja angel. I love it. Well, what does the ninja angel do? It brought him out and he says, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. I just set you free from prison for preaching the gospel. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and I want you to do it again. Like sometimes you got to get in a little trouble for the sake of the gospel. And so he gets out. They go back. They stand in the temple at daybreak. And they start preaching. And the high priest came and those who were with them. And they called to the council and the synod of the people of Israel. They sent to the prison to have them. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison because of the ninja angel. So they returned and they reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, there was no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone told him, look. The men who you put in prison are now standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went through and brought them, by, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. After they were arrested the first time, they get out, and then what do they do? They, they go out, and they continue to preach again. And then they get arrested again, and then they're brought into prison, and then they go back out again. Like, they've been arrested Three times. That's more than Dallas Cowboys offensive line. Like, that's amazing. That's funny right there. I don't care who you think you are. Like, that, that's funny, right? But the question that we must ask ourselves is, is this. What price are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? Like, how much are you willing to go through and willing to suffer and willing to endure for, for following after Jesus. Like eventually, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to leave some stuff behind. You're going to have to get over some stuff. You're going to you're gonna have to sacrifice, and sometimes you're going to have to suffer for the, for the name of Jesus. What price are you willing to pay for Jesus? Let me ask you this. Are you still going to be as faithful in attending church when your pastor's in prison for not performing a gay wedding? Are you going to come? Are you going to come and are you still, still going to come to church whenever, or still going to give so radically whenever you lose your tax exemptions for your credits? Are you still going to be as generous when that day comes? Because there's already politicians running on a platform of eliminating the tax exemption of churches. What happens when we can't afford property taxes and churches all across the nation close down and the government seizes buildings? What happens when we are not able to move into this new space, but instead we have to have church down by the river in the Texas sun? There ain't no kids ministry. There ain't no comfortable chairs. There ain't no air conditioner. Are you still willing to follow Jesus? What price are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? Listen, if you can put a price on it, then Jesus ain't worth it to you. 
Like there has to come a moment where we, we have to decide. Like if you won't join a small group now, what are you going to do when the church goes underground? Yeah. And they're meeting in homes. You're like, I don't like going to people's homes. That's all you got. Are you willing to follow Jesus then? Like people are always like, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. That's great. But would you give your life for him? Like Jesus died for you. And yes, I want you to live for Jesus. But in some places, it is a very real reality that you might actually die for what you believe. How much are you willing to endure? What are you willing to do? What are you willing to go through in order to follow Jesus? One of the greatest theologians in American history, his name was Jonathan Edwards. And he, he famously said this, uh, the mark of a true Christian is one who perseveres to the end. So when do we know if we're, if we're saved? It's not by church attendance, it's by perseverance, right? A lot of people, they, they profess a faith they don't possess and now they're not even practicing it. So how do we know? Because here's what we've been taught. Bow your head, close your eyes, pray this prayer and you're a Christian now. But that's not what Jesus teaches, if you remember, Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after me. That's a whole lot different than the American gospel we've been sold. And so how do we know if a person's saved? If they persevere. That's, that's, that's how we know a person's saved. And if, if COVID taught me anything is that, is that if people will stop following Jesus because of a pandemic, God help us when real persecution comes our way. Like 38% of Christians stopped going to church during the pandemic. I mean, what's going to happen the next time they attempt this? What's going to happen the next time it happens? What happens when real, genuine persecution comes our way? And then people are going to start saying, well, it's the church's fault because the church this, the church that, let's blame the church for all, it's all the church. People are leaving the church. People are leaving the church. Listen, I do not believe that people are leaving the church. In one sense, yes, they are leaving the church, but I think it's not that the church is, is people are leaving. I think rather we're just losing some dead weight. Because the body of Christ has been bloated for far too long. Instead of people who persevere, we've had people who pretend. Because there was a benefit to following Jesus. And now that it's no longer popular or accepted or trendy or there's some sort of influence you can gain, people no longer see the benefit of walking with the Lord and being a member of a church. And so now they've dipped. People say, well, why, why are people leaving? Listen, I, I don't know if people are, are leaving so much as what John says, they departed from us because they were never one of us. Peter talks about it like this. Later on in his book, I think when he's reflecting back onto this moment in the book of 2 Peter, he talks about people who have tasted the goodness of God. They've experienced, they've heard the message. They signed the membership paper and then they abandoned their faith. Here's what he said. They are like dogs returning to their vomit. It's a hard word. But it's a true word, and it's a, it's a sobering word. What's the price you're willing to pay in following after Jesus? I love hearing stories about our missionary partners overseas and, and what God's doing in the underground church. When me and Ashley first felt a call to ministry, we had an opportunity to meet a, a, Kore, a North Korean missionary. And if you don't know this or not, but Ashley is a first-generation Korean-American and her family's actually from North Korea. So her, her, her family uh, were refugees from North Korea into South Korea. And then her mom moved here in the 80s. And that's how Ashley got here. And so she's always had this heart for the Korean people. 
and we had the opportunity to meet a Korean missionary, and he was served on the, in the Pyongyang River in the DMZ area, and he would actually smuggle Bibles into North Korea. And here's how he did it. They would take pages of the Bible, they would stuff them in balloons and float the balloons over the river. And the, the villages would gather them, and they would read and memorize the scriptures. We take our Bibles for granted. They don't. And they would memorize it, and they would speak the, speak the words to one another. That's, that's how they had church. And he would take these refugees in, and he would ask them, he's like, what's it like to be in prison or to be starved to death? And, and they would say, I've never experienced the presence of God so much than when I was in that jail cell. He said, we have to go back to share the gospel with more people. We have to get more people saved and free. And when I hear those stories, I just think, do they know something about God that we don't? Like in all of our luxury and our materialism and our wealth and our abundance, do we really understand the depths of the presence of God? Like maybe they have something we don't have. Because when they've lost everything, they have the only thing that matters. It's Jesus. And they hold fast. Like in our world, like we're so worried about where we're going to send our kids to school and what kind of clothes we're going to wear and job that we're going to get and what kind of, what kind of car we're going to drive. They, they don't have to worry about that because it has reprioritized their lives around what matters the most. And there is the presence of God like we will never know. Does following Jesus in North Korea mean something different than in America? It shouldn't. Persecution prioritizes what's important for us. He's done it for them. And God, I just believe that one day, maybe we don't even need persecution to open our hearts. We just need to learn from the persecuted church. What they experience and what they go through to reprioritize what matters the most for us. What price are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? Which leads to the third thing is preaching, which is my favorite point if you can't tell. Because I like it. Here's what it says in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly taught you to not teach in the what? What does he say? In the name. He can't even say the name Jesus. Can't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. Like in our society, here's, here's what we can do. We can say every other name, but not that name. Like you could talk about God. You could talk about Buddha. You could talk about uh, Muhammad. You could talk about Allah. You could talk about Mother Earth and the universe. But God forbid if somebody says the name of Jesus, everybody loses their mind. It's like Christianity is the only closet you can't come out of these days. Like, I remember I was, on, I was on, the, on the news. We did our Turkey Day giveaway, and, uh, and they interviewed me, and I was like, I'm going to say Jesus as many times as I can. 15-minute interview. And I'm like, Jesus, 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 Jesus. It was a 15-second clip. <laughs> now, luckily, the, the news actually works for us, and they put the whole thing in. She came and told me. She's like, actually, before I started coming to church, I wrote that. And I was like, okay, thank you. God bless you. <laughs> but try saying the name of Jesus. You're not going to get bonus points today. There's a, because, because there, there is a spirit of the age that is unleashed in America right now. 
It's the spirit of Babylon that has been set free, and it is wreaking havoc upon our entire country, causing confusion, causing chaos. Like people say, well, there's no actual leader that's leading any of these thought movements. I know because there's a demonic principality that is over it that is swaying people's minds. The spirit of the age has blinded people. So now we can't even say the name of Jesus because it's offensive. Let me just, let's just go ahead and offend some people right now. Redemption, what's his name? Jesus. Say his name again. Jesus. What's his name? Jesus. He is the name above all names. There is no one like him. There is no one beside him. He is the first, the last, the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And his name is? Jesus. Amen. So Peter, he stands and he begins preaching. The name, and he says this, we must obey God rather than man. He said, you can't do that. He's like, I got to obey God. I, I can't obey you. Because, because at the end of the day, what matters most is what God says about us, not what the world says about us, not what people say about us. And it's not the government, it's God. What God says is most important. And we don't take our cues from culture, but rather from scripture. And we live the way of God's will and God's word and God's ways. And that's what we have to do. We have to be faithful to God, even if it means we get disobedient to the government and to the world or to those around us. Because at the end of the day, what matters most is what God says. And so we have to obey this word. We have to obey God. We must obey God. The father of, who raised Jesus, whom you have killed by hanging him on a tree. He's preaching the gospel now. God exalted him at his right hand. He's the leader and savior to give repentance and forgiveness to the nation of Israel. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When he heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to what? But the Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, he was a religious leader, brought some clarity, some sound mind, calmed everybody's tensions down a little bit. A teacher of the law. He held in honor of all people. He stood up and he gave the order. He said, put these men outside for a minute. And he said to the men of Israel, take care about what you're doing to these men. For, be, for, for in those days, Thaddeus rose up and he claimed to be somebody. A number of men followed him. About 400 joined him and he was killed. And all who followed him, they dispersed and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in those days in the census and drew away some of the people after him. But he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is an undertaking of man, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Christianity is the biggest thing on the world. There are 3.5 billion Christians, every tribe, tongue, and nation all across this planet. It is bigger than Amazon. It is bigger than Walmart. It's bigger than McDonald's. Like everywhere Coca-Cola's been, Christ's been first. Yeah. And so it's growing, growing, growing. And here's what he says. He says that if this is of man, it's going to fail. But if it's from God, you can't stop it. You might even be found opposing it. Listen, Nero is dead. Caesar is dead. Long live King Jesus. The empire of Rome has fallen, but the kingdom of God still grows. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests and Gamaliel, they're dead. But Jesus is the one who we're preaching today. The church of Jesus Christ is what Jesus built. It's what Jesus left. It's what he's shepherding and it's what he's coming back for. And so the church continues to grow. 
No matter what you have thought or heard or taught or what you have read, in a hundred years, it's going to be gone, but the church of Jesus Christ will remain. Nations have risen and fallen, but the church is still here. Kings and queens have come and gone, but the church is still here. Empires are gone, but the kingdom of God is still here because it's not man, it is God. And when you oppose the church, you're opposing God himself. Like when people get offended at you, listen, don't take it personally. They're not opposing you. They're opposing God. Like when people oppose the church, like they're not, they're not opposing you. They're opposing God. And so people are not our enemies. People are our mission. Like I'm not telling anybody, please don't hear this message and say, oh, Pastor Byron wants me to go out and be a jerk for Jesus. Like that's what I was saying, like, like, like boldness without love is just being a jerk. And so we are, we are to love people, but, but at the same time, we're, we're to reach people. And we can't reach people by affirming them and by agreeing with them. We have to be distinct and different in some way. He says, I'm not going to cave in. And then the story goes on. He, he says this. He says, they called all the people together. They beat him again, charged him not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let him go. I want you to notice something. The apostles did not get in trouble for performing miracles. Like, Jesus didn't get in trouble for performing miracles. Like, nobody got mad at Jesus for feeding 5,000 people. Like, he wasn't walking on water, and everybody's like, hey, you can't do that. Knock it off, right? Nobody got upset about Jesus for, 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 for performing miracles. Here's why they crucified Jesus. They said, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They they crucified Jesus because of his message. What is the message? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the message. And so when they crucified Jesus, they thought it was all over. Then the apostles, they pick up the message and they continue the ministry of Christ. And it was not just a miracle ministry. Yes, miracles are great. We believe in miracles. We pray for miracles. We lay hands on the sick and they recover. I want to see all those things. That's what set up this text. They were performing miracles in the temple. But when they get arrested, they're not going back to the miracles. They're preaching the message. Because the miracles confirm the message. The signs point to a Savior. And the, 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 the witnesses, it's because of the wonders that people are experiencing. But it's the, it's the message that people find offensive. But it's the message that we can't change. We can't change the word. We can't edit the word. We can't apologize for the words because we are God's messengers. We are not God's editors. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. As opposition increases, preaching will decrease. As opposition to the gospel increases... The preaching of the gospel will decrease. What you're going to begin to see in this new territory that we're entering into is there will be a lot of pastors who instead of preaching gospel-centered messages, they'll preach man-centered messages. The Bible says in the last days there will be itching ears and people will no longer listen to sound doctrine. You're going to see churches begin to say become open and affirming with flags outside who say, we welcome everyone except for the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit changes who we are. You're going to begin to see 
Churches affirm LGBTQ+, ordination of priests and pastors, churches that throw parades for things the Bible says that we should weep for. And then you're gonna start hearing messages like tolerance, but tolerance is not the message of Christianity, repentance is. It says God is patient, desiring that none shall perish. God is not tolerant. He calls us to repentance. And as hostility to the message increases, you're gonna see that there's gonna be pastors and preachers and churches that begin to decrease the level of their preaching. Right now, the number one song on Christian iTunes is by a drag queen named Flamey Grant, criticizing the, the church. The United Methodist Church just voted a split, affirming same-sex marriages and the ordination of queer pastors. John Wesley would be rolling in his grave right now if he saw what has happened. The United Church of Christ just voted 611 to 24 in favor of putting abortion in their bylaws, affirming abortion. The United Christian Church, the United Church of Christ. For all of you young believers who are new to faith and you're like, I need to find me a good church where the people are united in Christ. You go there, there ain't no Christ and there ain't no unity. They're not united with Christ. And as opposition increases, you're gonna find preaching like this decrease. Like in many churches across America, I would be fired on Monday morning for the things that I'm saying today. But not here, y'all my people. Like, like, do you think I, I enjoy preaching these messages? Do you think I enjoy people walking out and, and sending emails? Do you think I enjoy offending people and having meetings? Do you think I, I, I just, I wake up and choose this every single day? No, I just preach through what the Bible says and then we apply it to our lives. Like, I wish I had the, the ability to just preach happy-go-lucky sermons. Like, I wish I could do that and I could just talk about like how God has a wonderful plan for your life and that you are the head and not the tail. You're the first and the last and you want to live the best life now and you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Just keep singing hymns and skipping until Jesus comes back. Like, I wish that was what my calling was, but that's not the assignment that I've been giving. That's not the mantle that God has laid upon my shoulders. He has called us to build a church that looks like the book of Acts and that means preaching the gospel and sometimes it means you get in a little bit of trouble. I'm not here for people to like me. I'm not here for your applause. I'm not here for your approval. I'm here on an assignment from Jesus to preach the gospel, to see lives changed, to see souls saved, to advance the kingdom of God, to storm the gates of hell, and to plunder hell and populate heaven. That's what I've been called to, and that's what we're gonna do. I will not edit the word of God. I will not water down the word of God. I will not change the word of God because it is God's word that changes us we don't change it for culture we preach it and it begins to change the culture of the world that we see but we will not edit the message we will not back down we will not be quiet we'll stand firm we will stand fast and we'll preach the message as it's been taught for 2,000 years and if that means we get in a little trouble sometimes bring it on if you can't handle the heat get out of the pulpit Number four, all this culminates into something that I find so beautiful, and it's a life of praise. Look what happens here. It says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing. 
Ethan, you just got beat. Let me see the scars on your back. Whoa, I can see your spine. That's amazing. Look at mine. What do mine look like? Oh man, they beat you bad. Praise God. Hallelujah. Why? Because they were considered worthy to suffer for the name. Worthy to suffer for the name. They were dishonored by man, but they were honored by God. And then what do they do after this? It says in the next verse, they ran around from town to town and temples and houses, and they continued teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Listen, I hope that you, you never need this message. I, I really do. I hope that, that people are like, all right, I'm going to give Byron a pass this week. He was just being dramatic. Next week is going to be different, right? I, I hope that. I hope in 20 years this is sitting on the sermon archive and everybody's forgotten about this message. But I can't promise you that. I can't guarantee that for you. But here's what we, we do know. Here's what we do see. Is that whether it's persecution or whether it's just pain or problems, there's an application that all of us can have is this. Is that you can worship even in the most difficult of circumstances. Don't just go through it, worship through it. Don't just go through problems, worship through them. Don't just go through pain, worship through them. Don't just go through suffering, worship through the suffering. Because you have a, a God that loves you and cares for you and adores you and a God that has saved you. You have, a, you, have a, you have a God that has given a joy inside of you that no one can take away from you. There is a joy that has been given that is not dependent from the world, but it comes from the Lord because the joy of the Lord is your strength. There is a hope that is deposited within you. First Peter says this hope is a living hope that is guaranteed, it is secure, it is kept in heaven for you, imperishable, undefiled, and it is unfading that your salvation has been assured and you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and this world may be uncertain but you know that eternity is sure that you may not know what the future holds but you know the one who holds the future and your hope is in him your trust is in him your life is in him and no matter what happens you know above a shadow of doubt that you are loved you are saved you are cared for and that's what matters the most so don't just go through it worship through it as a church So I told you at the beginning of the message that we went through Hurricane Harvey and all of the being rescued by a boat and trying to rebuild our lives and we've lost electricity and power. And, and I'm like, I would never wanna go through that ever again. But as I'm thinking about it this week, I have to be honest with you, I kind of miss it a little bit. You say, why, why do you miss it? I miss it because it was in that moment of crisis I saw the church at its best. I saw us no longer worry about the day-to-day -day stuff. Like people didn't care about what clothes you wore or what school you went to. People didn't care about what their calendar looked like or how busy they were. In that moment, I, I saw the church be the church. Before the government stepped in, the church was already there. I saw next door neighbors 
bringing people into their houses. I saw people feeding out of their own lack. I saw, I saw the church being radically generous. I, I, I saw hospitality on display. I saw people praying for the first time. I saw people going back to church that had been out for years. And for a moment, just a moment, I saw what I thought would be the beginning of a revival. And then we went back to life as usual. I have to think like sometimes like wouldn't it be great if we could live like that every day and here's the reality guys is when the world is at its darkest the church is at her best when the world is dark the church shines bright if you're like the world is getting darker great that means the light is going to shine brighter that means people who are lost are going to be found that means people who are in darkness are going to step into the light. That means that, that, that what was dead is now going to become alive. That means when the world is at its darkest, the church is at her best. So do not be afraid of what is to come. Instead, remain faithful even in the midst of it. Do not be scared. Guys, I don't want you to be scared. But I do think we need to be prepared for what happens when that day comes.